When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our trailblazer in this episode takes long-distance swimming to the extreme. In August 2020, she completed her 35th crossing of the English Channel, breaking the men's world record in the process. She also holds the record for the longest ever unassisted ocean swim of 124.4 kilometres. She's been dubbed one of the 20 inspirational people of 2020 by Marie Claire magazine and has found enough time on dry land to stop by for a chat. Today's trailblazer is Chloe McArdle. Welcome to you. As we speak, you have been a fish out of water back in Australia from the UK. How are you finding it to be home? You did, of course, have to go through that whole hotel quarantine on your return. Yes, I was so glad to get out of there after 14 days and hadn't had a chance to swim that whole time, which is very foreign to me. First dip back in the ocean was just amazing. I can imagine. Well, we will delve into the nuts and bolts of your sport as we chat. But first of all, just listening to your achievements and those extraordinary distances, why? What appealed to you so much about taking up marathon swimming? I get this question asked to me <laughs> a lot. <laughs> well, funnily enough, it all kind of started when I was 11 because I realized all my friends knew how to swim and I didn't. And I was a bit embarrassed about that. I, I started really late into swimming. My learn to swim, just basic learning how to swim, 25 meters started, yeah, when just before I started high school. But then after that, I just got straight into competitive swimming, loved racing. I loved pushing myself. And I loved that I could focus on just constantly making small improvements in myself. I didn't need to focus on other people. I could really use it as a challenge for myself. So I thrived in that competitive environment where I could always keep pushing my own boundaries and setting my own goals. And then it kind of evolved. I gave away competitive swimming, but then I was drawn into the open water. I did a bit of triathlon when I started university when I was 17, 18. And then... From the open water swimming, which is a part of triathlon, then I discovered marathon swimming. And it was interesting because there's something I say about marathon swimming is that I didn't find it, it found me. It was one of those moments in life I think you get, everyone has at some point where you realize that you've just found what you've been looking for for so long. And sometimes you didn't even know you're looking for that thing. But you, but when you're in that moment and you just your new passion or your new drive or maybe the new place that you want to live and you're just like I'm here I've I've made it this is it so I had this amazing like epiphany when I did my first marathon swim 
And I can literally say I've never looked back from there. Uh, What's your background, Chloe? You're a Melbourne girl, right? (laughs) I'm a Melbourne girl, yes. Loved sport as a kid. Three elder brothers and sisters, and they loved sport too. So it just seemed natural to to get out there and play sport in primary school and secondary school. I didn't uh, really focus on anything, any one sport particular, until I got into competitive swimming when I was in year eight at school. My parents didn't have a background really in sport. They weren't uh, sporty parents. They also weren't um, particularly driven parents. There are some parents out there who like hothouse their kids, which means mm. that they, they kind of groom them um, in a way to, to be future competitive athletes because they want them to reach the top of the sport or a sport. But I had hands-off parents who were like, look, we don't necessarily want you to be a competitive swimmer, but if you're going to do it, you're going to have to be taking yourself to training a lot of the time. You're going to have to wake yourself up early in the morning because this is definitely going to be your dream because it's not ours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nothing like a bit of parental honesty. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you, uh, a lot of, well, I'm going to call them regular swimmers, if you like. They talk about the relentless following of the black line in the pool. And it might get tedious, but at least you get a sense of where you are, how far it is to the end. You get a perception of distance. What on earth do you do in the middle of a huge body of water? Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring up this aspect between, say, pool swimming and open water swimming because they're intrinsically linked. They're very similar, and yet they're so different. When I first got into marathon swimming, I loved that I'd broken free from this concrete infrastructure of swimming in a you know, chlorinated, a chemically filled and sanitized pool. And, and when I got out there, there was no lines. And it wasn't like I was racing people down to one hundredth of a second, which mm-hmm. is what happens in competitive swimming. You're always trying to find this tiny little bit of an improvement to try and beat the field at. But in open water swimming, it's more about completing your marathon swim if you're going for the longer distance swim. So a marathon is 10 kilometers or more. And I just, I love that aspect that I could kind of set myself free in this environment that was wild because you can't control what the tide's doing, what the wave's doing, uh, how strong the wind's going to be. And then there's so many other variables like water temperature and you've got either a kayak or a boat there assisting you to get you to the finish, not like you don't literally touch the kayak or boat, but they bring you feeds or help direct you, things like that. So, and that beautiful dynamic of, of working in that team environment. So I really just loved that I could become like a pioneer and an explorer out in the open water. And it was just, it was me in the waves and me in the ocean. And I, I could break free from that the concrete and chlorinated indoor pool. So I think it was kind of a, like an ethereal experience that got me into marathon swimming. And then, and then that led me to swimming the English Channel. And there's, There's nothing I could imagine more magical than swimming between England and France. You've done that so many times. Now, does it ever get easier? (laughs) Well, it's always difficult to swim the English Channel. It's 34 kilometres. The water is cold. It's between 17 to 18 Celsius. Sometimes, actually, I've swum it down to 13 Celsius. I went in a month. We're not really supposed to swim. So as a standard, it, it is hard. Like, it takes me about... 34 to 35,000 arm strokes just to get to France in one single crossing. So, you know, even if the weather's not terrible, it's still a hard slog. Every day out there is tough. But in saying that, I've kind of refined single crossings down to a bit of an art. Um, You may have heard back in August, I swam the English Channel four times in 16 days. So I am able to get up there, get back out there, recover fast, uh, and get through whatever the, the channel throws at me. But in saying that, like, it's still exhausting, and I'm still really 
tired after each swim because even if I'm not pushed by the conditions, I push myself, got that drive that I, I want to get to France as quickly as possible. I don't want to, you know, dilly dather about and just flop around the water. Like I want to push myself and drive myself to see how, how fast I can get to France as well. Mm, I love to say that, but I take a plane when I'm thinking that. Um, <laughs> what, what does your preparation look like for this? What are we talking in terms of training? I kind of build my year out so that I have different blocks because at different times of the year, certain things are priority. So right now I've come out of a big English Channel campaign and so my volume is down while it's been down because in quarantine I could not swim for 14 days. But even so, between uh, leading into Christmas and the end of January, it's like my off-season, so it's quite low low for me mileage. So the low mileage for me is about 20, 25 kilometres a week and then I usually do some other sports. Like I'll get in, right now I'm into Pilates and I'll do a bit more running when I get a little bit more fit. And then what happens is about late February, I go through a block where I'm doing huge, start doing huge amounts of volume, but building up gradually. So then I'm building up, say, 50 kilometers a week. And then the last few months before I leave for England, so May to July, then I really load up. So we're looking at about 70 to 80 kilometers a week if my body can handle it. And that's a combination. By then I'm doing a lot in that of cold water swimming because the English Channel is cold. That's the conditions of the swim. So my body needs to literally acclimatise to what it's like to swim into water that that triggers hypothermia. The English Channel is so cold that myself as a swimmer and other swimmers out there, um, we can often get hypothermia. That's when our core temperature drops below 35 degrees. It is a very concerning health condition. If it's left unchecked and gets worse, you know, people can actually go become unconscious, go into coma and and die. So training for that so that my body knows how to function in cold water and it knows how to perform and doesn't just go into like this survival mode. It's really important. So the last three months I'm doing lots of cold water swimming as well as high intensity interval training in the pool with a national level squad to so a competitive swim squad. Tell us what it looks like for you on the actual day from from when you get up, the day that you're going to start your channel swim, and what time is that, incidentally? Because I'm guessing that you're not getting a lion with a nice latte, a spot of breakfast, and the sun <laughs> comes up. That's not how it works, right? Yeah, definitely not how it works. <laughs> so the, the English channel swim is a beast. We don't know as swimmers in advance what day we're going to swim. We don't know what time of the day or night we're going to swim. We do know that most swims start between 12 and 5 in the morning. So they start in the dark, which means we've got to wake up late kind of the night before and the swims are only confirmed about dinner the night before a swim because the weather is so changeable so the 24 hours preceding my channel swim I'm on tender hooks is the swim going to go ahead is it not and then I've got to anticipate that it is going ahead have like an afternoon nap before I eat dinner because then I'll only get a usually a few hours sleep before I wake up and then have to drive to the swim start. So the day before, there's a lot of unknown uncertainty. Sometimes these swims are cancelled as we're boarding the boat because the weather's turned or fog's rolled in, making the visibility too poor for it to go ahead. So I usually do get a light dinner the night before. I'll have just got up from a nap. Then I'll have another short few hours nap. Then we drive. So I have a support crew person that goes on the boat with me and administers all my feeds via rope and a drink bottle and just gives general moral support. So then we'll drive to the boat, which is where we load the things on the boat, like all my equipment, my feeds, my towels, my other things like that. 
that all gets loaded onto the boat and then the boat goes to the swim start. And the, yeah, as I said earlier, it's usually really early in the morning between 12 and 5am, so we start in pitch black. Well, Chloe McArdle has achieved enormous success in open water swimming, but sometimes things don't always go to plan. Next up, we chat to her about what happens when the other side is just too far away. Stay with us on Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. We're chatting with world record marathon swimmer Chloe McArdle. Chloe, you mentioned the challenges that you can plan for in a big open water swim, like the weather. What about the ones that you can't? What's been your most frightening experience? So my first year of English Channel swimming was back in 2009, and I'd never been to England before. I'd never swum for over, I think, 10 hours before. So it was a big thing to go over and go to England and, and swim the treacherous, world-famous waters of the English Channel. I got in for my swim. The first crossing went well. So my first planned crossing of the English Channel was actually a double crossing, which means get into England, swim to France, get out straight away, turn around, get back in and swim back to England. So a double crossing (laughs) is 68 kilometres. So the first crossing went fine. The conditions were quite favourable. There wasn't much wind, fairly flat conditions, which every channel swimmer wants. I got to France, looked back, could not see England, just saw blue for as far as I could see on the horizon. <laughs> got back in and things just, just weren't right uh, on this second crossing. And then I was swimming and swimming, swimming. And then hour 20, the conditions weren't really bad. I had two to two and a half metre waves. So that's both in full four and five knots. And then, and then in the middle of the night, these horrible conditions, and I was definitely hypothermic by this point, 20 hours in, the boat captain lost me in the middle of the English Channel. And all I could see in front of me is this boat just drifting off in front of me, away from me. And that boat was my only lifeline because they're the only people that know my exact location in the English Channel. They're the only one that can keep me safe. They can keep other boats around away from me because there's ferry ships, cargo ships, ocean liners out there. It's really dangerous to be by yourself in the pitch black in two and a half metre waves when you know you're hypothermic and you've been out there 20 hours. So I was absolutely terrified. And yeah, it was luckily an experience I've never had to have again. I've seen a photo on your website of you in the channel with a huge container ship that just looked to me that bit too close for comfort, but it looked like a lovely day and and it was fine weather. But are you afraid of, of the external factors normally? Losing your boat in the dark in a storm is, is definitely not ideal. But, but on a regular swim, one that goes well, how aware are you of all those external factors? Single crossing are pretty straightforward for me now. And I have an amazing boat captain. And there's actually two of them. They're brothers, boat captains. And I have such a high level of trust in them to do the job of getting me safely to France that stroke by stroke, as I'm swimming across the channel, I'm not particularly worried about my health or my safety because we've done that swim 30 times before. I've done it 37, but I've done at least 30 with this particular boat captain. And they also escorted me for my Australian first triple non-stop crossing of the English Channel back in 2015. So they've been there for 36 hours of as I've been swimming non-stop back and forth to the English Channel. So I've got a high level of trust with them mm-hmm. to the point where I don't worry about the cargo ships around me. I don't worry about the cruise liners. Sometimes there's even submarines out there, the English and French Coast Guard, Navy ships, helicopters. There are refugees getting plucked out of the English Channel. But all that really is just a 
the backdrop because I'm just there and my job is to stick next to my support boat because I'm only a few metres to the mm. side of it at any time. So my job is to stay with that boat and just to keep keep a good pace, maintain that, take my feed. And I let them do all the worrying. So they're in constant communication by radio with the English and French Coast Guards and, and these ships. And these cargo ships are huge. They're up to two lengths of the MCG, so over 400 metres long. Mm. Um, they weigh up to 19,000 metric tonnes when they're filled with cargo. So there are two very busy shipping lanes. There's over 700 boats moving through the English Channel every day. But with my boat captain, because we have so much experience together and they've been doing this for over 40 years, both of them, yeah, I'm, I'm not particularly worried about any of the traffic out there on these days. In the double crossing that you did where you had to be pulled oh, out of yes. the water and your, your team, they really had to, to, to actually save your life. You've put so much work into that. And even though you'd swum longer than ever before, did it feel like a failure? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So with marathon swimming, it's kind of like an all or nothing. You know, in tennis, you can make the quarters or the semis or at least get to the grand final. So there's gradients of kind of success. But with marathon swimming, you either complete the marathon swim or you don't. It's really black and white. And sometimes it can feel like if you don't achieve your goal, it can feel like you're a failure. There are definitely times where I've, I've felt like I should have done better, I could have done better, and I've taken that on as a, as a heavy burden, but also as a learning opportunity to really reflect afterwards, well, what could I do better next time? Or what could I do different? Or maybe I'm asking the people around me, you know, what do you think? What's your opinion? You were on the boat. What, what could we do different next time? In regards particularly to 2009, that first year when I was trying a double crossing, I had issues with the the way the swim was run. That particular boat captain, he put the course for the swim because it needs to be, the swim needs to be really carefully guided because there's very strong tides up to 7.1 metres, which are some of the highest tides you find anywhere in the world. You've got the high tides and then you've got this boat and shipping traffic. So the boat captain is supposed to concentrate the whole time, literally, and they have co-captains so that they can relieve each other and have rest. Basically, things are going on that should not have been going on in that swim. I found out afterwards all the details. And because I realized that the the issues around this swim were out of my control and that I believed that the reason the swim was unsuccessful, that second crossing was unsuccessful, was out of my control, I didn't have that huge disappointment or feeling like mm. I, I could have done better or should have done better in that particular instance because it was really out of my control. What I did straight after that swim was I interviewed another boat captain, the one that I've now done 30 swims with, and I said, would you take me next year for a double crossing? He goes, yep, sure. And then the very next year I went back swam a double crossing in 20 hours and 48 minutes, which is, is, is pretty much a time that a lot of swimmers will do for a one-way crossing. It just showed, it just verified to me what I thought, which was, you know, unfortunately that boat captain in that year wasn't the right mm. fit for me to do my double crossing. And sometimes things go wrong and you just need to find a way to work around it. Listen, outside of the English Channel crossings, can we call that your pet event, if you like? Uh, yes, where, where, that's <laughs> really good terminology. I haven't heard that, but that's it. Where else <laughs> have you, you swum? Uh, I think the Bahamas sounds like a nice spot. I just don't know that I'd spend 41 and a half hours in the water setting a world record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as, as you can imagine, most people think of Bahamas as like a postcard destination. But I basically went to Bahamas to torture myself. Uh, I was like, I want to get the world record for the long Longest non-stop swim. Where can I do it that's not freezing cold like the English Channel? <laughs> and so I chose the Bahamas. So the reason why I wanted a warm water swim was because the English Channel 
the risk of hypothermia is, is like an exponential curve. Mm. The more hours you stay in, the more heat that's getting leached away from your body by the cold water around you. And I knew if I wouldn't spend 40 or 50 hours to get this world record, I needed to have a warmer location. Yeah, that swim was quite torturous. I got stung by jellyfish. I think the worst thing for me was swimming nonstop for 42 hours meant that I swam through two full days. And my sunscreen wore off probably within four to five hours on the first day. So I was literally getting burned by the sun every hour after about hour five, every hour for the rest of the first day and for the whole entire second day. So I spent all the daylight hours basically burnt, like my skin, everyone was burning. And then I was just hoping for the night time, praying that the night would come so that I would get some relief from that burning. But then when the night came, then the jellyfish came out and then I was getting stung. But like someone just picked up an iron and was just pressing it against my skin. I was getting stung by these jellyfish. And then I was praying for daylight to come so that the jellyfish would go away. It was like this never-ending merry-go-round wow. of, of pain and torture. And then when I got out at the end, I, I went to ICU in the Bahamas. And yeah. that didn't help at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you set a record because uh, you want a good outcome at the end of uh, putting your body through exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> and you're talking to someone that prunes up after about 20 minutes in a bathtub, so I can't even imagine what you went through with that. But I've got to say, Chloe, my first thought about open water is normally sharks. Does that ever feature in your reckoning? It's really interesting. Jaws has a lot to answer for. <laughs> it seems to have spurred an, an international fear of the ocean for a lot of people. There are a lot of people now who are like, I want to swim in Port Phillip Bay in Melbourne because there might be a shark. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's ever died from being bitten by a shark in Port Phillip Bay ever historically, but okay, sure. So in the English Channel, there are some shark species, but they don't have teeth. So no one's ever been bothered. No, no swimmer has ever been bothered by a shark in the English Channel upon anyone's recognition and People have been swimming the English Channel since the late 1800s. So that's not an issue. There are certain places where I am very careful if I swim, like to Rottnest Island. I've swum there a couple of times and I'd be very careful about how I do that. In terms of the Bahamas, we knew that the Bahamas has the most diverse shark species in the world. Like it is renowned for ocean sharks. Like they're everywhere. We actually had a plan where we had these scuba divers who would release this what we call a shark bomb which is a synthetic replication of rotting shark flesh so it's a chemical replica no sharks were harmed in the process of making this um, <laughs> material and so what that was is that was released constantly it was attached within uh, like a bucket with holes in it I was attached to the kayakers who were next to me the whole entire swim and they the kayakers were on rotation because they couldn't they couldn't kayak for 42 hours mm. So they're always next to me. There's this rotting shark smell that is released constantly around me and that was to ward off the shark. We also picked a month of the year where some of the more human potentially threatening sharks weren't as active. So we did some research leading into that and then we had some strategies of ways to prevent sharks from becoming too interested in me as a swimmer. But yeah, I mean, generally sharks, <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't hunt humans if someone is bitten it. It's by mistake. Yeah, I don't want to be on the wrong yeah. end of that mistake. Well, if you've ever fancied a solo swim across the English Channel, stay tuned. You're in luck. Chloe coaches people to do exactly that. You're listening to Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Chloe, you've coached others through a channel crossing. 
What walks of life do these people come from? I love coaching people to swim the English Channel because selfishly, I get to live through their journeys and when they succeed, I also feel like I'm there with them swimming to France and going through those motions of succeeding as well. So it is a passion of mine. I've coached 150 people to swim the English Channel, all the way from young ones. So I've coached two relays from Geelong Grammar, a school based in Victoria. Young kids in relays, a 16-year-old schoolgirl. I coached uh, Fernanda Lopez to swim a single crossing. And then last year, amazingly, I coached a farmer from regional Victoria in um, Marysborough to swim a double non-stop crossing and he was 59 years of age and I've also coached lots of executives so I find that there are a lot of people 40s and 50s who have reached amazing results in their professional life and they're they just want to focus on something different than work and family and they want to achieve something in the physical space in the sporting world that they're really proud of and that they can really invest in and go on this amazing journey all sorts of people from all walks of life so do you ascertain if they have what it takes or is it your job to shape them into the person that will achieve their dream? Oh, that's such an interesting question. From a psychological point of view, I don't think I could take someone who's grown up or has a mentality of like living in a cotton wool bubble. <laughs> if they're afraid of pushing their boundaries, if they only want to swim indoors in the pool because they're scared of things in the ocean, they're not the type of people that I would say work with because there are other really good coaches who can help them kind of break through that. So I work with swimmers who are already quite confident and who already would be competing in like one or two kilometre ocean swims. Sometimes they're already doing five kilometre ocean swims before they meet me. And so I used to meet them at a lot of these open water swim events. So they have to have a pretty good standard of physically in the swim world to, to join my program. But what happens in this program is I, I push them quite hard, especially on these swim camps. And what that does is it toughens them up throughout the program. So you can imagine that if you're a swimmer and you're going along to one of these swim camps and I tell you as a coach, you've got to swim for six hours nonstop in 15 Celsius water, <laughs> you can't get out. And if you get out, you won't pass the minimum requirements set by the Channel Swimming Association from the English Channel. You can imagine for that person, the pressure has just gone up a whole nother level. Yeah. And they're going to get cold and hypothermic to that swim, but they're going to have to push through that. Yeah, the, the channel program definitely toughens up the swimmers. How, how do you teach them? I think it's another element of your swim camps that you run both here in Australia and in the US, but you also teach them the, the art of eating and drinking in the water. Can you explain that to us? As kids, we were told you don't swim after you eat. That's not optional in the yeah. swim. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny how things change, advice changes over time. We call it feeding. So feeding could be either solid or liquid that the swimmer ingests in the middle of their swim or any point during the swim. And these feeds, we usually have them as liquids. Now, the reason they're liquids, usually not solid, is kind of for what you're alluding to, that if you've got a lot of food in your stomach, it can feel quite uncomfortable to swim uh, and it can make you feel a little bit unwell. So sticking to liquids means that your body can get the hydration and the energy that it needs and it also needs warmth because the English Channel is so cold, people are always on the verge potentially of getting hypothermia or managing mild hypothermia. They need that heat. So warm liquids with carbohydrates is a really good mm. way for them to take that sustenance without feeling anything heavy and uncomfortable in their stomach while they swim. 
So some swimmers will have no solids for a whole entire English Channel swim, and they'll usually take between 12 and 16 hours to finish that Channel swim. But then you have other swimmers who are, they just burn through huge amounts of energy. So some very tall, strong, well-built men, mm. they, they cannot go that long without eating solid food, for example. So they may have two feeds along the way. They could have crumpets or muffins or a bit of fruit, something that's carbohydrates Yum. and really easy <laughs> to digest. Well, crumpets is my favourite. The British press loved it this year when I said that I love swimming to France and getting a crumpet along the way. <laughs> yeah, and then they see what you actually do. <laughs> now, you just mentioned your crossings take around the 10-hour mark. You mentioned maybe 15, 16. Is that about what a rookie should expect? Well, the average English Channel swimmer, solo swimmer, yeah, takes about 13 to 14 hours. My swimmers have ranged from, for a single crossing, 11 hours to just under 16 hours, which is a really big variation. So most of my swimmers don't come from a very intense swimming background. Like they weren't competitive swimmers like me. They're literally just really driven people who have a basic ability to swim and they set these huge goals, which are way above where they are originally when they set out the swimmer channel. And they just bridge that gap. And it's amazing to watch their transformation through the program as they're getting stronger and faster and more resilient to the, to the cold. What's the most satisfying coaching experience you've had? Well, I don't like to have favourites. I love all my swimmers dearly. <laughs> but if I, if I was going to say that maybe one swim is more historic than the other swims, then I would say that was when Rick Sierra, the farmer from regional mm. Victoria, when he swam that double crossing last year, just watching him, I was crewing on his boat for his whole swim. So watching a 59-year-old man who does not come from a strong swimming background swim for 29 and a half hours when he was throwing up like that whole second portion of his swim, so the whole lap back from, <laughs> from France all the way back to England, he was vomiting. So every hour he'd just vomit and he would never complain he would take his next feet and he would just keep going. So watching that sterling determination and just the fact that he's, you know, he's nearly 60 and he swims for 29 and a half hours nonstop yeah. in the English Channel. Like, that's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. So I'll, I'll never forget those 29 hours for as long as I live. Uh, I read on your website, I've done a lot of trawling through your website, and uh, you also encourage people who want to volunteer as, say, a support kayaker or a member of the support crew. What kind of people are you looking for in those roles? Yeah, I'm so grateful for all the people who support my English Channel program because it's really good to have passionate people who really care about the swimmers surrounding these swimmers because these swimmers go through really tough places just to complete these training swims on the camp. So I'm looking for people who are really kind, considerate people who really care about supporting these swimmers to their goals. So anyone who's got an athletic background uh, or who loves to volunteer and especially loves being in the outdoors is usually a really great fit. And toughness too because in these swims, sometimes, for example, the weather can go bad mm. on, on a swim camp and we've got vertical rain for six hours, which happened one year in Melbourne. I mean, you know, not un unlike Melbourne, have terrible weather. And, yeah, we have to all hide <laughs> under boats and umbrellas. But we had to stay as a crew. We had to support these swimmers, you know, for six hours in, in the middle of a storm. Mm. And yeah, having that, that tough mentality and getting up at silly hours in the morning to start some of these swims is really important. And we get a lot of return swimmers who have 
done their swim, done their English Channel swim in a relay or solo, and they come back and they support in another year. And that's really special because the swimmers who are then going to their training to swim the English Channel, they see other return swimmers and they see that they completed their swim successfully and that they're similar age or similar ability, like swim pace to them, and they go, well, they've achieved it. And it gives them that extra sense of confidence that they can achieve it too. Mm. Can I just ask, how much cost is someone looking at uh, to partake in a, an English Channel swim? I'm guessing the first thing's the airfare to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> That's if the Australian government will let you out of the country, well, which is a whole other well, conversation. Well, there is that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it is a, it's a fairly costly sport, but it's still only about 20% of the cost of climbing Mount Everest. So mm. I've heard that climbing Mount Everest is about a $100,000 venture. Swim in the English Channel. It varies depending on what level of support you know you go, what sort of accommodation sort of flights you go, like business class or economy, things like that, mm. if you hire a private mm. coach like myself. If you take one person from Australia with you, it's just you to swim and one other support person, uh, and you've got at least 10 days accommodation in England, all up, I'd say... It would be about a twenty thousand dollar expense, mm-hmm. but then if you add on a few things here and there, it, you know, it can be thirty thousand dollars or more. It's interesting you mentioned Everest as well. Are you actually into any other extreme sports? <laughs> no, I'm. I I wrap myself in cotton wool when not swimming. I do extreme things within the swimming sport of marathon swimming, mm. but then outside that, I'm very careful what I'll do. The most extreme thing I'll do is go for a jog, because <laughs> if I get injured in doing just even simple things like horse riding you know the chance of injury is real mm. or you know any sort of contact sport i usually don't partake in because if i if i break something whatever it is and there's hundreds of bones in the body if i break one of them it could have a serious consequences for my swimming career so i definitely stay away from other extreme sports as well as mastering the waves and conditions that open water swimming can throw at you, Chloe does a wealth of work out of the water. After the break, we find out how she stays busy when she's not crossing the ocean. This is Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Chloe McArdle is with us. And while she's conquered waters all around the world, there is another side to her swimming... Your swimming helped you deal with a really painful part of your life. Are you able to tell us about that? Yes, sure. You had a difficult time in your personal life and I I think I remember you saying that you had swimming as part of your therapy for PTSD. Uh, Yes, so I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder after leaving a a relationship where there was domestic violence. It was a very difficult period of my life and... I had some really terrible symptoms that I was struggling to live with on a day-to-day basis to the point, for example, I had um, hypervigilance, which means that my body was, my mind was in a constant state of um, fear that something was going to happen so that it, it couldn't relax. And so I was up often, like literally the whole night, I would stay awake because I was worried that someone might better get into where I was living, like come through a door or a window or something. So I would stay up at night on guard, like literally patrolling the inside of my house. And then I would sleep during the day because I felt safe during the day. It was the only time of the 24-hour cycle that I felt safe. So it was, you know, it was a very, very difficult time. When I did go to swimming, and I would only go in the afternoon because at night I had my patrolling duties. Mm-hmm. When I went to swimming, it was such 
a good release where I could I felt safe. Um, I was in a really good swim squad where I trusted the people around me, and it was I was in a kind of a, a world where I struggled with trust and I had a lot of fear. So to be able to go to a space and be in a social environment where I felt supported, where I felt safe, and where I could exercise, and by exercising. I was releasing a lot of energy, which helped helped uh, re- reduce my anxiety by just getting all this excess energy I had out of my system and releasing mm. the ser- serotonin and that dopamine and adrenaline. Because when you swim fast, you also release adrenaline, and all those things just released all these happy chemicals and also calming chemicals and the oxytocin, which is another feel-good chemicals that you release when you're in a supportive environment, which you release it when you're around good friends or family that you feel that you're close with. So I would have that as well. As you can tell, I'm, I'm all over the, the feel-good chemicals. I know how to, <laughs> to, um, to get myself into a really good state. So it was just a really, really good release and a really good supportive environment, and I'm so happy that I, I had that. And then I... You know, I was lucky enough that because I've been exercising my whole adult life and all my teenage years, I knew I knew what sort of exercise and what sort of environment. And definitely for me, a social environment was really good because I got to basically rebuild trust by being around people that, you know, I knew would do the right thing by me. So it rebuilt my trust in, in society as well. So it was a really crucial part of my kind of rehabilitation mm-hmm. and then also I had to keep swimming because I had this goal of swimming the English Channel silly amounts of times and I couldn't just let go of the swimming either because I would never reach my goal you know of which still is I would like to get the world record for most crossings of the English Channel so I, I couldn't just walk away from swimming but it ended up being um, really cathartic as well so I'm mm-hmm. so glad that I had that opportunity. And I imagine when you've got something you have to concentrate so hard on, it gives you an element of, of control back over your life. So when I was in these hypervigilant episodes, yeah, I felt like I was completely out of control. And that's a really fearful state to be in, very vulnerable state. And at night too, when things were dark and visibility was poor. But when I went to swimming, I had I knew what to expect. There was so much familiarity, it's a tough word, you know, I knew I would go to the change rooms, I would go downstairs, I would swim four to five kilometres. I knew the type of sets that my coach would do. I, I'd done pretty much all the elements of these swim sets in the past at some point. So there was that familiarity and because it was familiar, it felt like it was controlled and I knew I could stop whenever I want. If I wanted to get out at any point, I could. If I wanted to modify sets, my coach was very flexible and supportive and at times you know, if I wanted to he would support that as well so I, I definitely had a lot more control I've never really reflected on that before you brought that up but it, that familiarity and that being able to yeah choose choose what I did when I went to swimming and, and being able to leave at any point was, was definitely a, a good thing for me very healthy mm. And Chloe, as you mentioned, you've also got that extraordinary focus. Uh, you mentioned that you wanted to beat the men's record for channel crossings, and you did that in August. That record was held by uh, Englishman Kevin Murphy. Did you speak to him before, or have you spoken to him since? Yeah, so we went out for coffee after I did that swim, and, and he was very gracious. He congratulated me. I mean, <laughs> He wasn't feeling it, though, was he? <laughs> oh, no, he's a love, lovely man. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, 
for, for fun, I say that I broke the men's world record. In, in, in technical sense, as I'm not a man, you know, it's like <laughs> I didn't, I don't actually have the men's world record. I just kind of surpassed it. So his title is safe. So I don't think he feels so much threatened yeah. by me because he knows he's, he's you know what's really funny, Steph. He has an official title which is called King of the English Channel. Like he. He, yeah. by right of doing the most crossings <laughs> in the world by any man, gets the title of king. And I'm going for, when I get the overall re- record, which is held by a woman, I will get the title of queen of the English Channel. Aye. So, you know, maybe next by the end of next year, end of next swim season, he can be the king and I can be the queen. You can so, be queen. Chloe, have you told Alison Streeter <laughs> you're coming for her title? I've actually never met Alison Streeter. I've been in correspondence with her once. That was many years ago, back in about 2008. So she was an incredible figure in marathon swimming, um, an ambassador, an amazing person. She was the first woman to swim a triple non-stop crossing of the English Channel. So I absolutely idolised her. I still do. But she's not in contact with channel swimmers anymore. She's Mm -hmm. removed herself from the swimming community. So I'm not in contact with her. I respect that she wants space from this this world of swimming, but I would love the opportunity to take her out for lunch one day if she's ever open to that. Well, I guess the one thing you do know for sure, Chloe, is that total is not moving. You've got a hard target that you're chasing. So have you also got a hard plan for when you're going to dethrone her? Well, originally I was thinking I'd love to go for that in 2023, but the response I had from the Australian and the UK international public from my swim where I broke the men's world record this year was so overwhelming. And the messages that I'm getting from people on social media reaching out, which is so heartwarming. And I was thinking with this amazing momentum that I should go after the world record next year instead. But to do that, I have to swim the English Channel seven times in one season, so seven times in less than three and a half months. And next year is going to be the busiest English Channel season on record. We know this because a lot of swimmers who were going to swim the English Channel this year deferred till next year. Mm -hmm. And it's already more popular than it was five or ten years ago. So there's basically like a bottleneck now Mm -hmm. of swimmers wanting to swim the English Channel next year. And I don't have seven positions to swim. I only have five. So it's going to be really hard for me to, to kind of squeeze in these two extra swims when other swimmers don't want to swim because they'll be on, on worse days. That's my goal now. I'll fast forward it to next year. So hopefully if we get a chance to chat again on your show this time next year, we'll be chatting about what it was like to grab that world record. Yeah, we'll definitely get you back for an update. Uh, just tell us, you've got a nomadic lifestyle. It sounds like you're a, sort of a citizen of the world. Where do you call home? I recently moved to Sydney, so originally and my whole life I've, I've lived in Melbourne, but I had a bit of a sea change late last year. I live on the northern beaches in Sydney, and I'm loving Sydney. It's beautiful. There's so many options of different places to swim. I try and avoid the Sydney traffic where possible. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, overall I'm really loving it, and I get to go back and visit Melbourne and visit family and friends and you know, partake in lots of cultural activities and things on offer when I'm there as well. So I think I've got the best of both worlds. And when we listen to all your unbelievable achievements, uh, tell us, do you ever get a holiday? Apart from when you had to quarantine, have you ever had a holiday in the last however many years? I don't know if I'd call quarantining a holiday. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But, yeah, I... 
I sometimes take a few days here and there because I travel a lot with my marathon swimming. I just tack on a few days onto those trips. So, I, I, for example, I've run swim camps in San Francisco and some of my most favorite people in the world live in San Francisco. So I take a couple of days before or after the swim camp, for example, and just hang out with them. So I don't really plan like one week or two week holidays once a year like maybe the average Australian would do. But I do try and grab a few days here and there on my travels to really soak in the best of whatever the local area has to offer. Chloe Mercado, your drive and your success is inspirational. We wish you all the very best for your upcoming exploits. We look forward to hearing about you taking that next world record. And thank you so much for sharing a bit of yourself with us on Trailblazers. Thanks, Steph.